thank you for listening to the Moral Revolution podcast. For more content, visit moralrevolution.com. Hey guys, it's Cole and Kate, and we're looking forward to giving you the raw, uncut version of our story, holding nothing back. Nothing? Nothing. Okay. Absolutely nothing. Here we go. Buckle up. That's right. Buckle up. What we really want to do is we want to dive into healthy conversations about sexuality for adults, for both married people to understand and give yourselves almost the permission to be able to address the fact that things from before you were married are coming up in your sex life that you weren't anticipating. And then also for singles, how can you best prepare yourself to be healthy mentally and emotionally, regardless of what type of situation or scenario or narrative you've been living out as it pertains to sexuality. And so we're going to kind of share pretty openly, um, very honestly, for, for those of you that are, you, maybe you have a, a student, you're looking for some content for a middle school or high school student. Um, we don't recommend this video because we want to, we want to get pretty real and authentic and raw for married people to really help break open the barrier that prevents people from being vulnerable, which is what we love to do. Vulnerability. And if this is your introduction to Moral Revolution because somebody's sending you this video or this audio podcast, Moral Revolution exists to have conversations around healthy sexuality. Cole and I are the co-directors of it, but there's a team of people all around the world that are creating content, telling their stories, and sharing stuff on the feed you can find at Moral Revolution on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Yeah, so I don't know about you, but marriage was like a big wake-up call when it came to sex for us on a hundred levels. You know, I, I look back at all the things that I thought and all the things that I had ideas of what it was going to look like. It really began to look nothing like that. And this is a story we hear over and over and over again from people in marriage. They realize, man, my past had way more of an impact on my present than I ever thought it would. My past partners, my pornography addiction, I never anticipated that these things would impact my current reality the way that they had. I mean, and we hear that honestly, both in good and bad people that were very sexually active or had porn issues or people that were raised in the church had never experienced sexuality and now feel really uncomfortable being open and that vulnerable and exposed with a spouse because it still feels wrong and bad and gross. And so we want to kind of just share from our story. We're going to, we're going to sprinkle in some, some science and understanding of the way we work and which will hopefully help uncover the why behind maybe some of the situations you're facing in your current marriage. For singles, understanding the science could maybe help you make some decisions and understand the why behind the decisions beyond just that, well, the Bible says so. Yeah. Um, Bible mm. says so is honestly should be a good enough answer, but we all know we're all human and unfortunately it's not always. It wasn't even good enough for Adam and Eve. Even though God said so, they still struggled in obedience. And thankfully we do have a gracious God who is willing to walk with us through those mistakes, but we also need to begin to understand the impact on our our psychology, our body, our mind, our emotions. And so we want to just kind of talk through it from that perspective. You know, I was raised in the church. I was raised in a very Christian home, um, going to church, you know, three, four times a week. Uh, my mom and my dad did a really good job prioritizing and teaching a relationship with the Lord. And on top of the foundation of relationship with the Lord, they really enforced this idea of knowing who you are. My mom was always reinforcing that. Who are you in Christ? Do you know who you are? We leave the house on the weekend and she'd remind us we're running out and she said, remember who you are. And I don't 
think even really to be truthful until I was in this role of moral revolution that I even understood the full impact of that. Once I began to study the research of how critical our home environment is to the way we perceive relationships, the way we understand sex, the way we understand intimacy, I look back and dots started to get connected. Oh, because of this, this is that's why this played out in my in our marriage, in our relationship, in my adult life. And I think that for both of us, one of the huge things for us has been able to is being able to identify hey, how do these things that took place at 13 that yeah. feel like that was so long ago, 20 years ago, why does that feel like it has such an impact on the way I view things today? I think that's been one of the big revelations that we've had in marriage is realizing, man, I've got to heal from decisions made at 13, at 14, at 15, and I'm 36. I've been forgiven. I'm in the grace of God. I'm living in the power of who he is. And yet coming to the grips of the reality is, wait a sec. Yeah, I'm powerful, but I'm also in process. That can be a hard thing for some people to realize. And I think for us, that's really what marks our story. And you know, being raised in a home like I was raised where it was Christian and not just religious Christian, but really like, hey, what is the Lord saying? Focus on a relationship. I'm so thankful for what my parents taught me and how they taught us to prioritize the presence of God and how they taught us to prioritize personal identity. What is Christ saying and who has Christ called you to be? Yeah, so I think identifying what your narrative was as a child. So it might even be you didn't have a bunch of experiences, but what were the experiences you had from what you encountered in relationships in your family or in your friend group or on just on media? We're so impacted by what we see. And so we've kind of broken it down into these three environments that are really helpful just to like understand, oh yeah, that is what my home life like was like. And sometimes it even differentiates from home to school to maybe a church or religious environment and understanding what your perceptions were and how they've created the narrative of what you believe up till now. Mm -hmm. And so the first one is the silent environment of just, man, the most important people in my life aren't talking about this, so it must not be that important. And you're left to figure it out on your own. It's very hush-hush. There's just, there's no top talk about it. And we hear that all the time in story shared of just like, I found out from porn or I found yeah. out from a friend. Like I was never told by like a loving, caring adult in my life <clears throat> what this was or how it worked or what's the why. Um, so that's the silent environment. Well, and there's even a statistic that came out of the United Kingdom that said 60% of the youth in the UK intentionally look at porn to fill the gaps in their lack of sex education because the adults in their life are silent. And man, we find that is so common. So many people have been raised or are being raised in an environment where they're basically left to figure it out on their own. Yeah, which the world does a very good job of teaching them and informing them terrible <laughs> ways to view sex. Like we know that the world and the messaging we receive from culture is all too often extremely perverted and just very saturated everywhere we go. And so that is actually the second home environment we also would recognize as a saturated home environment. So we already know the world is saturated with negative messaging yeah. about sex. Uh, no friend or no no no, no strings, strings attached. attached. No Friends strings attached. Yeah. No strings attached. Like, oh, it doesn't matter what you do, casual sex, friends with benefits. Oh, it's just hookup culture. So there's so many, um, the songs that we sing, the commercials, the Super Bowl shows, I mean, like literally just as endless, the perverse sex that we are bombarded with in our world. So the second home environment would be just saying, man, my home environment was also saturated with sex. It was just looked at as a physical thing. Everybody does it. Everybody's doing it. And even no so far as to go as, yeah, no boundaries where there'd be 
very crude and rude jokes or gestures made about it or maybe um, watching movies with your family that have, you know, these crazy sex scenes and nothing said and you're just like, oh, you just left to think, well, this is normal for us to all experience this together. Yeah. Um, and then it can even go so far as, you know, giving condoms to your son on his birthday or pornography, or pornography yeah. to help you get by. Like there's so many stories we've heard that kind of give that example of a saturated home environment. The third one would be the conflicted home environment. And this is where we often see stories come from different church environments or maybe somewhere where it was just very religious, where they would say, you know, here's your purity ring, wait till marriage, sex is good from God, but then it's all no, no, no. So it just feels like it's bad, it's shameful, it's dirty. I'm supposed to not even think about it. If I ask a question, I'm shamed for being curious or the very question makes it look like I'm guilty of doing something wrong or being dirty or being gross. And so it brings this conflicted, like, well, they say it's good, but all I feel around it is bad. And so then on the wedding day running in and being like, well, I've been told no my whole life. I don't know how to live the yes that God has said about yeah. sex. And then the fourth environment is the healthy, intentional home environment of just saying, man, what it would look like if parents were talking about it, that they have had proven to their children they are a trusted source. They had the power of first mention of telling their kids about sex, about porn, about understanding their body and their body image. Um, private parts, yeah. using the right words, a healthy, intentional home environment where they understand God's full design for sexuality and that God said yes to it, not no. And the reason this is so critical is because we begin to discover as psychology is advanced and neuroscience has advanced and we've begun to better understand the way the brain and the mind work in relationship with each other and our emotions, we've begun to discover that as the most intelligent species on earth, we have the most learned behaviors, which would contrast an instinctive behavior. An instinctive would be something that just comes natural. A learned behavior is something that has to be seen, experienced, or taught for a species to know how to do. And there's, there's differing opinions on sexuality. Some say, no, it's completely a learned behavior. Others say it's an instinctive behavior that breaks all of the instinctive rules because it evolves, it changes. It hasn't remained the same over time, right? Like, Climax points or arousal points change from generation to generation or even people group to people group. Pornography is involved. You, you know, these are just some of the um, things that they point at to try to understand what sexuality is. But with all of it, we realize the behavior of sex in humans, if it's instinctive, it doesn't follow the rules and it's changeable and it's pliable. And it's really significantly based on the first impression, the first, at most, the first and most frequent experiences that a human has, and that plays what feels like an almost irreversible role on their perspective of sexuality. And the, the challenge with that is the average kid in our generation is finding porn between eight and 11, and that's actually not a new statistic. The last two generations have found porn that early. Now, my generation, it was largely through magazines. The, the current generation, it's largely through the internet and, and videos and things of that nature. But if you think about the significance of a 10-year-old being exposed to sexuality so early, and I would even say it's probably earlier as far as exposure to sex, given the way that Netflix and TV and, and the things that we don't even classify as porn, right. but our sexualization. And so then we get into marriage. And this was the case for us. And I, I think a lot of the married people would probably relate to this. You get into marriage and you realize you, you do have all these strings attached to things that they told you there were no strings attached to. And we don't necessarily understand why. And that can be one of the most frustrating things in a relationship or a marriage is when I 
got an issue and I don't know why I have the issue and I can't figure out how to fix the issue. That was an issue. That was something we struggled with for a long time where we felt, man, things aren't going how we thought they would go in our sex life. Why? And we couldn't connect the dots. And so what we want to help identify that God really led us in through counseling and through, you know, counsel and counseling is helping us connect the dots to our early childhood experiences, our middle school, our high school, and then dismantle some of the perspectives that had been built and then allow the Lord to rebuild some of those so that we could work on that in our marriage. And, and so back to the, my part of the story, you know, growing up in a Christian home, I found pornography actually in the same age range. I think the first time I found it, it was actually under, I think it was seven below the eight to 11 age. And because I had been, my parents had reinforced presence of God and reinforced identity from a very early age. When I found it, I actually ran out of the room and there was this feeling in my own heart. This isn't me. I don't do this kind of a thing. Like I, as crazy it is, as it is, I re- distinctly remember thinking, I don't do this. Like having this thought. And at the time, obviously I wasn't even realizing that, that, you know, what that meant, but looking back and that's what my parents had taught me. They had taught me to know the Lord. They had taught me to know who I am. And because I knew who I was, I also knew who I wasn't. I knew that didn't fit into who I was and what God was doing in my life, even at that time. And so, you know, I went through middle school, high school, college, never looked at pornography, still haven't, never been with any woman besides Caitlin. I've never even actually told any woman I love you besides Caitlin in the form of a relationship or romantic. I actually told a girl in, in high school, she told me I loved, she loved me and I said, thank you. Um, and I was just like, I'm honest. I thought you wanted honesty. I really like you. And I'll let you know when I do. <laughs> did not go over well. That relationship did not last much longer. Um, but that was really what marked me. And so when we got married when I was 22. You know, I couldn't wait for sex on the wedding night and the honeymoon. It was like, God is going to bless me with the craziest, most awesome, amazing sex I've ever had. I'm going to live a porn movie. And I don't even know what a porn movie is because I've never seen one. But I can't wait to live one out. And, you know, we got, we dated for three years and our stories were very different. And so what ended up happening in our marriage looked very different based on what both of us brought to the table there. Yeah. My environment, I think growing up as a child, was <coughs> very, very different. Um, I would say I just lived, my identity was founded in my popularity. And so my formative years of figuring out who I was, was really based on what others thought about me and gaining Um, their approval. And so my sexual experiences started at the age of 12 to 13, like seventh grade. I had my first kiss um, and I remember sneaking out. And it was one of these moments where like all of your friends on both sides, like the boys and the girls, like they all knew we were doing this. So it was like, it just felt like this social pressure in the day, like in the moment, like everybody, my friends know we're sneaking out, we're going to go do this. And then even if I think about that very moment, I just remember thinking like, neither of us know what we're doing. And we're basically just mimicking the movies, which as young children who Mm -hmm. aren't informed by anybody else on what this is supposed to look like, what healthy boundaries and expectations are, then that's what we're left to do is mimic the movies and uh, just do what we've seen on TV. And so it's just very sloppy young seventh graders making no sense at all. But what that moment did was kind of socially informed me, subconsciously informed me like I am his and he is mine without even really any verbal commitments as a young 13-year-old. And so I went to a Catholic school uh, Catholic school, and had the typical like plaited, pleats, uh, pleated skirt you had to wear. 
And at the next time we had class that the lights went down for a presentation, it was one of those age old overhead projectors going on. Um, the lights went down and his <coughs> hands went up my skirt. And I remember everything in my body feeling like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't want this. This is weird. This isn't right. This is breaking rules. Like, I did not like the idea of it or how it felt. Um, but I remember thinking, like, I can't say no. Like, I am his and he is mine. And this is what you do. And I don't think I could have, like, I couldn't bear to think about what would happen if I said no or if I made a scene. And so really that just started that that voiceless feeling in myself of this is what girls do, this is what you do when a guy likes you, this is what you do as a girlfriend, really just, it really embedded that as my first impression and then became my <clears throat> most frequent one. So that relationship ended probably somewhere in seventh grade, no big deal. By eighth grade, I remember I got this boyfriend that it was official, we were boyfriend, girlfriend, and um, he was super popular. I thought he was so hot and I just <laughs> By thought- By eighth grade, I didn't even know how to talk to girls, so. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, so, yeah, it was a bunch, again, of social pressure of, like, these two are dating, you know, was, our best friends were dating. And it just felt like all the social pressure. And that is when I first engaged in oral sex. Um, and, again, social pressure would have never known what that was outside of friends telling you. And then just this idea that that's what you do. Like, this is what everybody's doing. This is what you're supposed to do. Him asking, me thinking, okay. But again, same scenarios of moments in back seats, sneaking out at houses, movie theaters where you're just like, I don't like this. And my body screaming no. I remember being in a movie theater um, where I was just being touched and I didn't like it again. But my, I had tears streaming down my face, but I'm pretending to enjoy it because I just think this is what you're supposed to do. And so these are the moments that informed me and that moments in back seats, in between the sheets, dark movie theaters that really moments of pressure that caused trauma in my life that took me more years to get out of than it even did to get into. So my years of having these sexual experiences lasted from about 13 to 16. So I found out that he cheated on me with a cheerleader and you know the fierceness in me was like, no way, no, no how this isn't happening. Um, but he was saying he was sorry, saying, will you stay with me? And I have a really, really bad memory, the point to where we can like pick a movie to watch one night and like I'll be halfway through like, oh, I've seen this before, but I can't remember the ending. It's like true. I have no idea what's going to happen, but nice. I know I've seen it. You watch movies multiple times. It's kind of a perk, I guess. Feels like the first time. I'm also the one in the parking lot that's like beeping the horn. a love song like that? What? It always feels like the first time. I don't know. There's a love song like that, I think. But I'm also the one, oh, somebody knows it. Uh, I'm also the one in the parking lot, like beeping to find the car because I cannot remember where I parked. So that's how bad my memory is. But <laughs> in this moment, I believe the Lord like encapsulated this so that I could remember this like subconscious decision making that happened in my life is that as a young 14 year old girl, when he's saying, stay with me, I cheated on you. I go to what's a powerful female do in this moment. And I made my decision based on a Nike commercial, which sounds absurd, but it was with Michael Jordan, who everybody knows. Uh, Cole calls him the GOAT, the greatest of all time. No, everybody calls him the GOAT. Okay, I don't. He does. Except for, except for young, uninformed people in this next generation. <laughs> I think LeBron Although James LeBron James fans are like, like yeah, not happy. Anyways. Um, so the commercial had Michael Jordan and then Mia Hamm, who was a famous female Olympian soccer player at the moment. And they were in this Nike commercial taunting each other back and forth on the court in the field. And the song that was playing was Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. And so subconsciously, that was my picture of a powerful female. And so I said, okay, I'll stay with you. And I made the decision in my heart that I'll just do it better. 
I'll do it better than he did. And so I started cheating on him every weekend. I would go to parties. I was kind of like adopted in by the upperclassmen girls. And I would go to all the parties where there were no freshman guys, including my boyfriend. And so I would just hook up most of the time, not knowing their names, um, getting drunk, not even really caring, but just thinking I'm winning because I'm doing this better. I'm winning because my little pink pager, which most of you that are listening (laughs) may be old enough to know what a pager is, but before cell phones, it was these little things that beeped when somebody wanted you to call them. And we literally had booty call numbers. And I remember feeling powerful because my pager was blowing up with booty calls because all I had been informed in is to be powerful and wanted was to be worthy. My friends and I had a little book that we secretly stashed in my bedroom And in this little silver journal, every girl had a page. And on the page, you wrote the names of the guys you've been with. And we thought, oh, the longer the list, like the better you were. Like I was like, I'm winning this. The competitive spirit in me was alive and well back then. Um, And I was going still (laughs) alive and well today. Let me tell you. Yeah, we can't play cards without some good old competition (laughs) happening in our house. Or I have to just let her win. You know, so anytime she's actually beat me, I've let her win. Whatever. Okay, we don't have time for that. They don't have time for that. (laughs) But I was so competitive and thinking I'm better because more guys want me. I'm better because my list is longer. Because the truth is we equated being wanted by many guys to being worthy of love. Because we didn't know our identity. We didn't know our worth outside of what society, movies, culture, MTV, everything was telling us. And so that was my story until I got dragged to a youth group by a nice Christian mama one night. Come on, Jesus. I was at my friend's house, and we always partied. This mama didn't know that when she went out of town, we threw the parties at her house (laughs) until the cops came. Um, But one night we were at her house, and she's like, if you're at our house right now, you're going to church. Dragged us in their little conversion van to church. And that night a seed was planted in my heart. The pastor said that God had a plan for my life. And that Jesus wanted a relationship with me. And that night, I remember those two phrases because I had never heard those before. In my Catholic upbringing, I just thought God was a very scary guy who wanted to get me in trouble when I did something wrong. And so it was the first time that these seeds were planted of like, wow, a purpose and a plan for my life and a relationship. And so I went to a Christian uh, summer camp that next summer because I had a Christian cousin who also never gave up on me and probably always was praying for me and asking me to go to things. And I was like, you don't know who I am. (laughs) And so I finally went because these seeds were planted. I'm like, I need to know more. And that night at a summer camp, there was a pastor preaching and prophesying over the crowd. I had no clue what that meant. I just knew it was real in the moment. And so as I was up in the front in a room of probably 800 teenagers, I just said, God, if you're real and you want me to give you my life and give up what I thought was the best life, um, then have that man call me up there and He said, girl in the black v-neck shirt, and he called me up on stage, and heaven just spoke over me that night. I know the Lord saw me, knew me, um, and my life was forever changed. The theme of the camp was no going back or no looking back, no going back, no way. And I guess it's good that I was competitive because that was going to be the truth (laughs) of my life. I was not looking back, no going back. I stopped drinking. I stopped partying. I stopped the guys, and um, my life was changed. Shortly after, she found the truth. (laughs) Oh, boy. But... And, and, you know, we get into marriage now that the story, fast forward the story a bit, because I met Caitlin probably a year and a half after she found the Lord, mm-hmm. her senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. We begin to date and I realized really quickly she was it. Like she was the one I wanted to marry. I knew that pretty quick. I, I, I really, I think within the first month or two, like I got weird and annoying and mushy and different. That's what she likes to think. But, <laughs> um, and it, I, I knew right away she was it. And so we, we date for three years, we get married. And 
we were, I was 22, she was 21 and we're going into our wedding night. And I'm thinking, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, like, I can't even imagine how great this is going to be because the Lord is going to reward me for being the only man in my entire generation that has chosen to wait and not look at pornography. And, you know, I had all these, all of these wonderfully, humbly, arrogant opinions of myself <laughs> and what God owed me because of all of my good decisions. Right. And we get into our wedding night and, and I don't know if you mentioned this part yet, but she, she actually hadn't ever had sexual intercourse, vaginal intercourse. It was oral sex. Yeah. Right. And so um, we get into the wedding night and it is like, not happening. Like we are not figuring it out. Cannot do it. Doesn't feel like it fits. And we actually called the pastor. It was her youth pastor that she talked about. She went to that youth group, Doug and, Doug and Gretchen. We called them. They, they married us. And we're like, hey, put it on speakerphone with Gretchen. We need help. We can't have sex. What do we do? Like it's not fitting. Help. And we actually didn't end up having sex our entire honeymoon. Um, never happened. After the honeymoon, it started to be sporadic, but honestly was with a lot, a lot, a lot of uncomfortable, um, emotional letdown. We would try. It wouldn't happen. We'd be like frustrated emotionally. We, I started to feel really rejected because it, all kinds of stuff started happening in Caitlin's heart and her mind that we didn't understand why this stuff was happening at 22, at 23 years old in marriage. Yeah. Well, I would say first was physical pain yep. and the physical pain. I didn't even really, the emotional and heart things we were having were only linked to that of feeling. I was just feeling like a failure. Like, I don't know what to do. This hurts so bad. So it was excruciatingly painful for me for years. And so that almost built its own trauma into it of like being triggered of like, oh, I need to do this, but it hurts so bad. So just like preparing myself to be in pain and not wanting to even let him fully into the pain because then he's not going to want to ask me or engage with me in a way that's going to cause me pain. So it was this yeah. back and forth of really big failed expectations, um, which when I think of that season, I just always think like failed expectations do not have to lead to failed marriages. Oh, say it again. Failed expectations. Put it in the lower third. <laughs> failed expectations do not have to lead to failed marriages. But a lot of times that's what's happening is there's there's disappointment, there's hurt, then bitterness, then unforgiveness, and it just grows and grows and grows unless you do the work and you figure out the root problem. Yeah. You get healing, you get help. Well, you and it ebbs vulnerable. and flows. Like there were moments where we were like, well, this is our lot in life. Yeah. Like I remember distinctly thinking, well, this is, I guess, why I've never looked at porn. Yeah. This is why I haven't ever had sex because God needed me to not have to have it because I'm married to Caitlin and yeah. I'm never going to be able to get to have a fulfilled sex life. I guess I can actually handle it. I've yeah. never been addicted. So I actually started to accept in a sense that like horrible state of our relationship. And yeah. then well, we, and then I went to a doctor and said, something's wrong. And she said, no, you just shouldn't have been a virgin when you got married. You should have had more sex is why it's hurting you so bad. So I too was just like this disappointment of this is our lot in life. It's yeah. just going to hurt the rest of my life. Totally. And, and then you know, we'd have moments where we'd go to a retreat, right? We'd go to something and we'd be, all right, let's talk about this. And then we, really the reality of it is we just started talking to people. We started talking, we talked to our senior pastors at a marriage retreat, like our sex life sucks. Can you help? Or actually there's no sucking going on. It's just a bad sex life. <laughs> We're like talking to our executive, anybody that would listen, we started telling them what was going on, which was really tough because all of our circles, everybody was constantly bragging about how great sex was, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if that's just a Christian church thing or what that is, but mm -hmm. it was like everybody, oh yeah, sex, it's amazing, it's this. And 
this weekend or, you know, always jokes like that. And we're always like, like, yeah, we feel yeah. you. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> Yay. Ours is awful. Um, you know, and, and so then we get to the point where we actually have, we're have, you're giving birth to our first, first son, son Caleb yeah. and the doctor delivering says, Hey, you, yeah. She said, is intercourse painful? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. And she said, you have an issue. I was in a lot of pain at the moment, so I don't know what the issue even was called anymore, but she said, I can, normally you'd have to do a little outpatient surgery, but I can fix it since we're down here. So she fixed the issue of extra tissue that rhymed. Um, <laughs> and literally never had pain again. So after recovering from baby and having intercourse, it was like, we were both like, oh my gosh, we couldn't even believe it. I could not believe that I was going to have sex without pain. Like it was amazing. And I couldn't believe I was going to have sex. <laughs> so it was like a wild moment for us both. So yeah, we started engaging and being like, just so pumped. Like I was so pumped that it didn't hurt anymore. But that is when we realized oh, there's other things at play because Cole would just come up behind me um, just out of kindness and rub my back. A little back touch. And I would get triggered and my body would shut down just like I explained it did as a young 13, 14, 15-year-old girl. Because then once the physical pain and that factor was gone, I realized, oh, there are other things at play. And what it is is that I had believed lust for so long that I could not believe that love was real when it came to physical interactions. Mm -hmm. My body knew touch meant nice, kind things meant he just wants me. I had known my body as an object, as a reward, as a um, forced yes, even when I said no. And then in our marriage, it played out like that, not in any forced moments, but of like, I'm saying yes, even though it's painful. So it was always this, I say yes, even though I mean no. And so now I didn't have any of that there. And it was removed from the the factors of why I don't want it. And I realized, oh, well, there's no pain. Why do I still feel this way? Well, and, and there was there was no logical reason for it. Like we'd talk about it. Like, do you feel safe with me? Yes. Do you trust me? Yes. Do we love each other? Yes. Do you trust that I love you? Like logically, right. there shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, there was and, no past for me to overcome either. So it was like, oh, I don't have to think, is he lying to me? Is he comparing me? Is he, is he, am I enough? Like there was none of that. Like I fully in my head trusted him. It was my body that And that's where this trauma. early conditioning, we, I, we begin to realize in marriages as we've counseled and, and ministered to people is a really significant aspect to a lot of marriages. There's something called supernormal stimuli. So it's an event that's so significant as a child that it has like a trauma impact on the brain. So you actually can't be talked out of believing that you should be better. And you actually have to begin to have significant inner healing. And that's where we finally got to the point like, okay, let's go to counseling. Yep. Right. And I, I feel like back then we, we've always been open to counseling, but there still was like this stigma, the really sure. messed up people go to counseling. Yeah. Like when he said, can we ask like this other pastor friend of ours for a recommendation? I just remember thinking, he's going to think I'm the worst wife. He's going to think we're so messed up. He's, you know, like yeah. I just, I put that assumed like judgment and everything on us. But we were in such help that I'm like, yes, just ask. Yeah, we got to do it. Yeah. So we go to counseling and we're going to kind of speed up the story here a bit so we can get to some, some healthy conclusions. But we start with the counselor. The counselor, the first session is like, hey, do you think we went together? Do you think you guys could refrain from sexual intimacy until we get through this process? And we're thinking like, I'm, I'm like, I mean, I'm barely doing it once a month now anyways. No problem, doc. Like, let me know. <laughs> and... Well, that period ends up being 18 months. 
And so we went a year and a half without any type of sexual intimacy. And it really began to create a reset for Caitlin. And, and the, the beautiful thing with the grace of God, as I look back, and there, don't get me wrong, there were frustrated moments. There were nights where I'm like, how am I going to do this? Um, I felt there was, there was moments where I was tempted to resent her. I mean, there's all, all kinds of stuff that, that was at play there. But at the same time, as I went through it, I also looked at it and I was like, man, if, if in Ephesians, he, he instructs the husband, be to your wife as Christ is the church, to love her, giving yourself up for her to clothe, to cleanse her. And I thought, and if I'm to be to Caitlin, what Christ is to me, I'll never be able to sacrifice at that level because that level of sacrifice will never be needed from me. I'll never have to die on a cross because he did it for us. So if this is what I have to give to create space for her health, that I'm willing to give that. And I actually, the Lord helped me shift my perspective and look at this and realize, man, this is my act of love and sacrifice. And I was actually kind of conditioned to do this. I had never experienced orgasm just because I needed a fix of personal pleasure. It was never the selfish act of the flesh for me. I had only ever ex experienced it in the context of intimacy. So because of that, intimacy required something else. I believe that's why my heart, my soul, my spirit was able to give that with the partnering with the Holy Spirit to give her what she needed, which was the space. And so, so we got out of this 18 months period. And I remember we, we went on a little getaway. We went, we went to Napa for the weekend. When the, once the counselor was like, I think you can have sex again. We were like, mm -hmm. wait, let me share a little bit of that okay. part though. Yeah. So inside of that, because if they're, if you're listening and you're like, oh man, I relate more to Caitlin's story and it's male or female, if you have moments, um, she diagnosed me with PTSD on our yeah, first sorry. time. Sure. So that's post-traumatic stress disorder. So she labeled everything that I'd been through as these traumas that had happened to me in moments of manipulation, pressure, saying no for 45 minutes, you know, all of these <clears> things that she, like in the same way that you're like Jesus Christ says in Ephesians 5 and prepares us. I'm like, Jesus, she walked Jesus into the room with me in those moments. And we did the inner healing and revisiting work to say, Jesus, where were you? What did you think? What, you know, so it was a, it was very like psychological as well and engaging the brain and healing the trauma, but inviting Jesus into that pain. And it's hard work. I never like to like sugarcoat it and make it sound like, oh, it was so fun. Like it was so painful to revisit traumas. Um, it was so much work to do it, well, but it's I, so worth and it. And labeling trauma properly, right? Caitlin had never been raped. The scenarios, though there was pressure, she ultimately said yes. And I think that's one of the things people do is we compare our stories to like a human trafficking story or a rape story. And people say, mine's not that bad. I shouldn't be this messed up. And therefore we never ask for help. Yes. And that mentality has trapped so many marriages in a cycle of pain. Yeah, I always just thought I need to get over it. Like, what in the world? Like, this is not a big deal. Um, but give yourself permission yeah. to be broken and pursue healing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, and so we get done with this this counseling period. We go on this weekend away from Napa, and we realize, you know, we don't want there to be pressure on having sex on this weekend. So we actually still didn't do it on that weekend again. And that's one of the things for those that are single or engaged or dating, we always encourage people. That's one of the biggest talks I give to anybody. I officiate their wedding. Don't put so much pressure on having sex on your wedding night or even on the honeymoon because there can be so much weight there and both people can be so nervous that it doesn't happen and there's a massive letdown and they start on their honeymoon a cycle of emotional letdown. 
And so we just actually spent time together. We got comfortable naked with each other. We got to re-know each other in that way that we really hadn't. And sex began to be bearable for her. But we also, again, weren't willing to settle for bearable. Yeah. We wanted to continue to pursue enjoyable in the way that God designed it. And that didn't come, honestly, 10, 11 years into our marriage was the first time Caitlin actually experienced an orgasm. Yep. And that was obviously uncomfortable for us both. It's horrible for her to experience sex and intimacy that way in marriage. It felt really uncomfortable for me. Like, what am I doing? Am I, you know, let's just, I'm just going to put this out there. You have all of these lies coming in from culture. Like, am I not big enough? Do I have issues? Do I not know what I'm doing? I, all these things in my head of what I'm doing wrong or what's wrong with me that I can't pleasure her or, mm-hmm. or make her feel this. Um, and that was a significant trans part for us that we just, and I know a lot of couples that have learned to just, they've just accepted she's not going to experience that. And we want to be the first to say, please don't settle for that. Yep. Because 10 years into our marriage, she had an orgasm for the first time and it was like fireworks. And now it's like, Every time. Yep. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. So here's the thing is that that pressure that he's talking about of alleviating is taking the pressure off the honeymoon or if you're married, taking the pressure off of performance. Sex was never meant to be a performance. Sex is a bonding agent gift of connection and love between inside of a covenant. And so part of the gift is discovering each other, is discovering the, the journey of finding pleasure, of finding um, what some what your spouse likes or doesn't like is finding orgasm. Like that's the that's part of the journey. So if you think, oh, I have to perform um, well for him, I have to perform well for her. Oh, I didn't get it. He didn't get it. That, those are always these pressure like performance mm-hmm. based thinking. Instead of it's like no no no. The gift is that we get to have fun discovering each other. We get to have fun learning each other. And then like he said, never ever ever settle for less than best. So than God's best to be specific. So for me, even once I had an orgasm and things were going good, there were still certain things that I didn't like or didn't prefer that I'm like, man, I'm not going to just stay there and say, that's just it. Like that's our story because those were linked to my past. Um, and I knew it. If, if I just thought, oh, that's a preference thing, which, you know, I had been counseled before, like could just be a preference thing. So I gave myself some grace, but I'm like, mm, they're specifically the things that are linked to my past. And so going after it and again, re-engaging and doing the hard work. Well, I work. think the balance to that for, for me was always, I don't want her to feel pressured. I don't want her to have to feel like she's got to arrive at a sexual destination. I just want to make sure that we're being as free as possible and we both are on this journey together and that we're not willing to just accept defeat. Yeah. Right. And so that was our balance. Um, we want to wrap up this session and I'm making this, this executive decision right now. We're going to do a follow-up session to this where we're going to unpack a little bit more the science and the, the deeper understanding as to why and that we'll, that we'll do some ministry at the end of it. Yeah. Um, but I think here, here's the thing we want everybody to walk away from this moment with is understanding two things. Vulner, the depth of your vulnerability will determine the completeness of your healing and your wholeness in marriage. Yeah. We would not be where we're at right now with a healthy, connected, intimate, fulfilled sex life, communi- communication life, relationship, if we weren't willing to be vulnerable often with a lot of people. This is probably the biggest cry and the biggest message that Caitlin and I personally are screaming to the church. Vulnerability, vulnerability, vulnerability. Because we didn't know the answers. And actually, to be honest, we didn't know anybody that did know the answers. 
We just kept being vulnerable until we found the answers and we found someone that knew it. Yeah. And when he says a lot of people, that's not a prerequisite. It's just we had to keep going to yeah. people till we found the if help. If you find the help on the first one, you're good. Go for it. <laughs> like more power to you. We hope you do. Yeah. And building friendships on both sides, like him having guys that he can trust and talk to and hold accountable, me having girls that I can trust and open up with. So you're not feeling like, oh, I'm living this like fake life that you're like, I don't know. Like you have to build that space of vulnerability and friendships and finding a couple mentor that you guys trust and then put potentially professional counselors that can help you if you need some further healing. Yeah. So being vulnerable. And I think the second thing is taking an inventory of the impact that your childhood had on your current perspective of relationship and of sexuality there. It likely had a much larger impact and it could be why you feel stuck. There may be a certain area of your relationship that you're just stuck in and just going in and be even just, I, I, we found it with people. They just became aware. Oh my goodness. I do this because of that. When I was 12, just becoming aware was enough to dislodge yeah. that bad habit. And it shifted the way they interacted with their spouse. Now for some, they realize, oh my goodness. I, it's like Caitlin, I don't like having oral sex or sex because of the oral sex I had when I was 14 and it required counseling or healing be willing to pursue that. But just becoming aware of the way those early experiences are connected to your current reality can be really a, a really significant step in your healing. So what we're going to do in the follow-up video to this is we're going to actually unpack the nuts and bolts of the science and the way the Holy Spirit will come in and renew the mind. We'll parallel it with our story that we just shared with you helping give you, giving you a deeper understanding of how to really pursue freedom. And maybe even it'll help identify when to go to a counselor, when you can go to just maybe a pastor or a leader. Um, but our hope and our heart is that everybody find freedom, that our marriages are thriving, that our singles are getting prepared for marriage as much as they can. So we trust and we're hoping that our story was encouraging to you um, and, and even maybe motivating. If, we, if anything, if nothing else, we want to give you the permission to be open, to be vulnerable and, yeah. to, and to identify your story and share it. Yep. You have to own your story. So don't hide from it. A lot of times that's what happens with our sex stories or our sexual histories. We just kind of have buried it. So invite the Lord into the process. Invite a trusted friend in and say, what is my story? Where was I formed in this? And when we own our story, and we know that it brings God glory because we're not hiding in shame. We're living healed. We're living whole. We're living free. You just have to know it and own it. For all the marrieds, our prayer is that you have an awesome, intimate, connected, and amazing sex life. Thank you for listening to the Moral Revolution podcast. For more content, visit moralrevolution.com and follow us on social media, pursuing God's design for sexuality.